Chapter 4 Enough Talk Cutting the Ribbon on Adventure With all the duties like wood collection or winter prep on deck, those first few days were about savoring the moment. The incubating idea that we had been talking about for months and that I had been envisioning for years was biting through the shell and hatching. All those responsible tasks were going to get back in line and take a number. This was a grand opening ceremony to celebrate and get to know the surroundings of an area we would be a denizen of indefinitely. With the cabin stocked of many needs to include fishing supplies, our celebration would kick off with fishing at the lake we had passed about a mile back, Murray Lake, a decent-sized body of water in the mold of an upside-down foam number one hand that is a popular sell at sporting events. The marshy finger pointed towards Kalispell. The access road traveled alongside the eastern portion with some great casting locations on the east, north, and northwest shores. An aesthetic rock formation highlighted the northern tip. A southern section was appealing for fishing also, but requested an off-trail trek around the finger of marshland. Behind was a stiff hill that came to be known as Forgotten Poles Ridge and housed as quality a view available for that wooded section of state forest land, a tranquil place to forget whatever I engaged in previously. As purebred city slickers, we thought little about the situation we were putting ourselves through. We strolled to the lake with our poles and nothing else. No container to put the fish, no protection. We were in bear country. Daylight would guide us walking towards the lake, so the idea seemed brilliant. Once seated lakeside in weight of aquatic creatures biting the line, thinking a little and watching the sunset, we realized how poorly planned our outing had become. We had much to learn about this new way of life that we smoke-jumped into. What if we actually caught a fish? Where would we put it? We would have to carry it by hand a mile back to the cabin. The darkness arrived before we could be ready. We did not catch fish, but we smelled like bait. At dark. In bear country. The course home seemed like an eternity. I've known females named Eternity and always wondered if that would be an association one would want. We tend to reference Eternity to something long and awful. The bear was mauling me, seemed like an eternity. It took an eternity for the medevac to arrive. It must have seemed like an eternity for my parents waiting for the doctor to come out and let them know if I'd ever have use of my sexy abs again from the ferocious bear attack. I'd thereafter need an eternity of medical procedures. The writer had an eternity of overused and abused references to eternity. After the eternity, we found safe passage at the cabin, which, by definition, isn't possible. We made it out to Montana and proved that eternity could be a finite noun. We were alive, and the sky looked peculiar, very distinct from Toledo or Nashville. There was an eternity of stars in the sky, a positive use of eternity. We had proved that eternity was both finite and positive. What an amazing start to the journey. We started a fire and sat on top of the aloha, just overwhelmed by what was up above. 
I had been out in deserts and countrysides that were comparatively remote with little light pollution. Many of those moments stick out, but this occasion was a cut above the rest. This was home. We roved around the property those first few days to get a feel for the area. We ascended Kim's Peak to survey the land and inspected the skeet shooting site with its stash of clay pigeons and the metallic launcher. We found where the family was building a small cabin. An occasional train sound passed in the distance, and then there was the discovery and acquaintance to the stockpile of unprocessed firewood. Getting the Heat The ideal location to gather wood was near the skeet shooting site. A short downhill hike off the two-track was a patch of twenty or more dead trees. They had been felled a few years before with just enough time to season the proper firewood conditions. We sawed them into five or six-foot lengths and hauled them up the hill to the back of my truck. The favored method for hauling was by using a rope tied on one end with a smooth drag up the hill. Other times, with less grace and common sense, we shot-putted the logs at six feet a thrust up to the finish line. The involuntary and emasculated grunt that accompanied each toss worked seamlessly in keeping away bears and single women. Nearly a whole cord of wood fit in the back of the vehicle at a time, but typically we kept the stack to a more manageable weight of half that capacity. From there, we would take them to the yard and process them into 18-inch portions. Select logs were thus split into quarters or smaller for fire starting. The process was tiresome, yet gratifying knowing the heat we needed was coming from our own sweat, blood, and emasculated grunts. A man who cuts his own wood heats himself twice and gets many splinters, or however that saying goes by whoever said it. Almost every day comprised focus time for wood processing. We knew the days were limited before the snow would continually fall. The home for all this lumber was underneath the porch, and before too long, that whole porch underside would be full. Tarps covered the inventory to protect from moisture because the porch had some gaps in the flooring. It was eerie out there today. The trees were slowly swaying as the wind whistled through them. It really sounded like somebody whistling in the distance. While I was cutting, I was startled to see Brad collecting logs I had cut. We didn't acknowledge each other, and when I had finished cutting, he was gone. I did the usual log toss relay to get the rest of the logs to the truck that was nearly a hundred yards away. When I got there, I was glad to see that Brad had loaded the logs he had gathered. Back at the cabin, he had the fire going in the pit to aid his bread creation. I thanked him for coming out and helping. He looked at me as if he had no idea what I was talking about. I had the chilling realization that maybe I was just seeing things when I saw him in the creepy woods. If so, then who or what loaded those logs? Calms, 10-7-99. Those initial nights were cool, but not cold. The estimation of how much wood we would use with the wood-burning stove on a nightly basis proved adequate. Sitting around the wood-burning stove as though it were a television set became a familiar routine especially on the nights with no bonfire outside. Something about a warm, glowing source that puts a busy mind to rest. When we got back, we cut wood until the chainsaw nearly burned out. I hope we have the proper gas in it. 
We'll probably need a lot more wood than we think. I don't want to underestimate that. We run out of wood during the winter, we freeze. Calms 929-99 The fire outside did not happen as often as it should. A glaring reason was for wood supply concerns, as each bonfire prescribed a minimum of six logs. The early few months before winter hit were very conservative. As part of making the area more like home, we had built up a rock wall on one side to catch the heat and reflect it back towards us. With little luck proving the efficacy of the structure, it remained a tribute to the many survivalists that swear by it. Ultimate wood day. Holy crap. Two overfilled truckloads. Under the deck is basically filled. I don't need to say how exhausting today was, but I did. I'm not in the least bit cold tonight. The wood burner can really kick out heat. I just burned a hole in the back of my right hand by accidentally touching it to the door of the stove. I planned on working on my drawing today, but the wood adventure took all day. Brad did most of the sawing while I did most of the tossing. It feels great having all this wood, but it's all just going to end up burned up someday. Brad pointed out that's kind of like money. You get it just to lose it. I ate a million s'mores around the fire this evening after stacking the last of the wood in the dark. I've been thinking, and I hope Brad doesn't read this, but I'm becoming a little attracted to him. No, I've been thinking that I'm probably going to want to leave in January when my aunt and uncle leave. They're coming here for a week after Christmas. It just doesn't feel right living so easily. We're using Uncle Hal's cabin, though we did stain it, and using his wood, though we did cut it, but that doesn't make it ours. I think Uncle Hal would like it if we leave when he does, so he can do all the things that need to be done, like turning off the water and the power and whatever. I hope Brad is okay with that. Maybe we can come back out here next summer for a few weeks. I'll definitely be ready to leave in January. So far, this has been the most enjoyable experience of my life, but I don't want to overdo it. Calms 10-20-99 Earning Our Keep with September Stain A unique focus was also front and center. There was a shoddy feeling from settling in someone else's amazing cabin with no real contributions, rent payments, electrical bills, maintenance costs performed against the wood-burning stove, such a selfless act to allow us to stay there with no expectation of reimbursement. To soften the burden of our mere existence, we came up with hopeful ways to leave the cabin better than how we found it. Not enough to cover the price of admission, but anything was better than nothing. Job numero uno was staining the cabin. The biggest need of the property so far as Andy's relatives were fully intending to have their cabin stained, either by professionals or by themselves. The cabin was made of wood, and wood decays without the proper treatment. Our arrival at the beginning of September meant fall was formally on the doorstep. The sunny days would become the minority, bringing in much rain and possibly snow. We had to take advantage of every nice day there was, almost immediately. The challenge was that neither of us had stained a cabin before. Previous shop classes allowed for small wooden projects, but nothing commensurate to a nearly two-story cabin. I had also painted interiors, but even that action was limited. With apprenticeship-level experience painting houses, combined with Andy's skill and peaceful patience in artistic paintings, the task at hand was going to be a piece of cake. 
We began the process of staining the cabin today. Today also marks the one-week anniversary of our arrival here. Staining will be a little more work than anticipated. We only finished one side of the cabin. When we were through, we were covered in stain. Well, at least I was. Brad was more careful. I had to shower twice today to get the stain out of my hair. I got a very small sense of accomplishment from our work today. I can't wait to finish. Then I will feel pretty good. If I haven't drowned in wood stain, that is. Calms, 9-15-99 The project hastily turned out to be no trivial task. Staining was long, finicky, and made a gigantic mess. The mess was unavoidable without the proper outfit, a hazmat suit. We learned that stain was far more invasive than paint, and paint was deeply invasive. The back of the cabin was much harder to stain than the side. The peak goes up so high we had to extend the brush by taping a stick to it. I got impatient and started spraying like mad, and it all began to drip on my head before I could smooth it out. Some got in my hair, some in my mouth. That sucked. I finally decided to take a lunch break when Brad called me to the back of the cabin. When I got there, I noticed the difference in consistency between what I had done and what he was currently spraying. He was using stuff from the bottom of the can, and guess what? We forgot to stir the stain, and the stuff on the bottom was all thick and syrupy. We opened the second can and stirred it, only to find that it was much darker than all the unstirred stain we have been using. Two days work down the drain. We decided to take a couple days off because we pretty much have to start over. Not very encouraging. Calms, 9-16-99 The planning required a reasonable understanding of future weather and a weather forecast for that area was a broad statement. Being near mountains causes localized weather events. The reason that weather was so important was that once stained, the drying process requires enough time to settle or risk becoming susceptible to warping and runoff. Our estimation was one entire day of clear weather following the work to absorb properly and become impervious. Two weeks since leaving Toledo. Probably the longest two weeks of my life. A good kind of long. Woke up ready to stain, and stain we did. We finished the side facing the road, and it looks great. It's not too much different than the back, but we still have to do the far side over. We may need to buy more stain. We listened to some tapes that were my uncle's Jeep, Almond Brothers, Elton John, The Beatles. Staining takes a long time. We should finish by Wednesday. Fingers crossed. They don't call this stuff stain for no reason. No matter how hard I scrub, it will not leave my skin or my clothing. I look at it as battle scars. Calms, 9-19-99 The ultimate battle with the stain took place this afternoon. I took it upon myself to stain above the deck. Two rolls of masking tape were vanquished while taping the windows so I wouldn't get stain on the edges. Well, that was successful. I didn't get stain on the edges of the windows. I got stain everywhere else on them, however. The tin roof I was standing on became soaked with stain and impossible to walk on. After many tears from fumes and looking directly into the blinding sun, I regained my eyesight and saw that I had won. The top is finished. Meanwhile, Brad did the bottom of the front. We aren't going to redo the first side we did. It doesn't look too light compared to the front. The back is just going to have to be darker than the rest of the sides. Calms. 92099 The task consumed every level of our consciousness. 
An inescapable clock winded down, the window closing. With so many diversions at our disposal, nothing else would receive the full enjoyment deserved with the thought of finishing the stain and getting those oppressive chains unlocked. A full day, utterly mesmerized by the beauty of northwest Montana, could be deflated by walking back to an unfinished stain job that growled like a rabid dog. The photo alone tells the story well about how badly we wanted the project done. What happened to Tuesday? That's right, we finished staining the cabin. It took all day, but we actually did it. We finished the deck, only leaving a few footprint spaces empty and just enough stain to fill them. We gathered everything we needed to camp out, and I filled in the footprints. Oh, what a feeling. Next step, cleaning. Calms, 929.99. The work was finally done. In looking back, there was some unnecessary perfectionism that prevented an early finale. Sure, there was a shade difference, and if there was a wand to be waved that could merge the differences, we would have opted for the wand wave. We had finished the unfinishable and felt marginally better about living inside its walls, though not enough to feel fully like we had earned our right to be there. We cut that invisible line that was pulling at us to finish, leaving the fun and adventure to become unleashed. Free to roam at last. I had already scouted out favorite spots, giving names to some. Boyle Lake was just north of our invisible boundaries. Relatively small in both size and depth, what drew my attraction to it was the openness that it allowed with the tracks near its southern tip. The open feel invited sunlight to the area as down trees all around gave way to bursts of wind from the loose, muddy soil. On the northeast corner, a small hill rose beyond the marshland that provided an unobstructed vantage point of the lake and trees to block wind, rain, and sunlight exposure overhead. I tried cleaning the sprayer this morning, but it's too drenched and stained to ever work again. Then I got my camera and headed out with Brad to destination unknown. After we passed my easel and went over the mountain, we were basically lost the rest of the day. We eventually stumbled upon Boyle Lake, so Brad knew the way from there. When we were on the train tracks, we heard some voices in the distance that sounded like girls. So we journeyed down the steep rock hill to investigate. We realized we were on private property when we came across a lady walking her dog. She was nice, but seemed annoyed that we were on her property. The sun was setting, so we headed in. Good workout. Calms, 10-10-99. Woods Lake was directly east of the property beyond Kim's Peak. Another shallow lake, but with its own personality that seduced me by its high volume of cattails and virtually no bare shoreline as its name would suggest. Nearly the entire surface area was of that popular aquatic plant, Thornburg Lake lay a half-mile northeast from there, with much of the same sense on a slighter scale, almost to the point where the lake itself was easy to miss altogether. Brad had the idea to hike to Woods Lake today. We took the backwoods, hoping to find an animal trail that I know of, but I calculated wrong and we ended up a little south of it. Beautiful hike, so many different views. We found the lake easily, then headed north through a marsh area. 
We began to walk through the cattails until Brad sunk to his knee in the mud. We quickly exited the marsh and headed for Thornburg Lake, but walked a half hour in the wrong direction. When we finally made it there, we found a half-built, run-down cabin. It was really old-looking. Then we set our sights on Whitefish Lake. When we reached the train tracks, we knew we had made it. The sun was getting ready to set, and we were nearly two hours from the cabin, so we headed in. All of this without seeing any wild animals besides birds and squirrels. There was a cool hawk at Thornburg Lake. It flew along the mountain on the opposite side of the lake, casting its shadow on the trees. Just when I was sure we weren't going to see anything else, Brad noticed deer down the tracks. I quickly took a photo just in time to watch their tails leap off into the woods. Brad was sure there would be deer, maybe elk, in a field that we were soon to be at. He was right. About the deer. Three more white tails running off into the woods. The sunset was brilliant. Too bad we couldn't see it because we were deep in the thick woods. I could see just enough color through the trees to tell that it looked awesome. While I was paying attention to the sky, we unknowingly walked by two deer that were only 10 yards away from us, or less. After we passed, they jumped up and we watched their white tails. I missed what could have been a very close-up shot of two deer looking at the camera. Oh well, they're just deer. I'd be pissed if I missed a shot of a bear like that. Actually, I'd probably be dead. We got back to the cabin just as darkness had completely settled. Calms, 10, 16, 99.